0: Welcome to Here and Now with Janan Shahid. You are listening to the news from communities of Kingston on CFRC 101.9 FM. We bring you voices not likely to be heard anywhere but on your campus radio every week. We are starting with some community related news from Queens. Patrick Dean, Queen's University's new principal and vice chancellor, hosted the community at his first principal's breakfast in Kingston on November 22nd, Friday. Two major issues raised by the community were related with housing crisis and street parties. Patrick Dean said he would like to look beyond the city's housing crisis and street parties during Homecoming and St. Patrick's Day. Growing discontent of the community with street parties and housing issue are seen as consequences of rising enrollment and employment at Queen's University. The principal acknowledged the importance of these problems, but he also argued that the possible ways the university can contribute to the society should not be overshadowed by these issues. There are 24,000 students living in the midst of a residential area in Kingston. Although university is part of the problem, housing crisis cannot be seen only tied to Queen's. The new principal has been having meetings with the Queen's and the Kingston community over the last five months, and he says he will introduce some changes starting with the fall semester next year. For the fourth year in a row, Kingston Transit will support the Salvation Army Community and Family Services annual holiday food drive with the Stuff the Bus event at Grand Snow Frills on Saturday, November the 13th. Kingston Transit staff and members of the Salvation Army will be on hand in the no-frills parking lot at 1162 Division Street from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. to fill a Kingston Transit bus with non-perishable food and personal hygiene items. Monetary donations will also be accepted. Jeremy da Costa, the Director of Transit Services, says that, as another holiday season approaches, we are teaming up with the Salvation Army Community and Family Services. The Salvation Army welcomes the continued support from Kingston Transit and their riders. It is estimated that there will be a significant need this year and the Salvation Army's goal is to see that no one in the Kingston area goes without adequate food. In 2016, the Salvation Army served over 12,000 individuals and over 6,500 families with food, clothing and practical assistance. Through community meal programs, the Food Bank provides over 16,000 nutritious meals to those in need. On January the 16th, the third annual Climate Change Symposium will happen at the Grand Theatre. Kristin Mullen, the Executive Director of Sustainable Kingston says, each day we make decisions that have a positive or negative impact on our environment. It can feel overwhelming. This year at the Climate Change Symposium, we will identify the small and large ways we can all act and make a difference. The Climate Change Symposium is hosted by the City and Sustainable Kingston and sponsored by St. Lawrence College, Queen's University, Lafarge, Carbon Zero, Environmental Contracting Services, MEC and Company and Light and & Co. If you want to register for the symposium, you can visit the website of Grand Theatre or Sustainable Kingston. Today I'd like to feature a blog article written by Alison Robertson and published on Sustainable Kingston website on November the 20th. The article was on microplastics. Microplastics are small pieces of plastic particles that are 5 mm in size. Some microplastics are manufactured for specific human use, while others are formed from the degradation of larger plastics. Alison Roberts from Queen's University writes that roughly 10,000 tons of plastic debris enter the Great Lakes each year. This occurs not only through waterways and shorelines from litter of degradation plastics, but also from microplastics found in hygiene products and clothing. This increases the plastic pollution and it causes an increase in biodiversity loss in Lake Ontario. Since microplastics are toxic to fish and bird species because plastic absorbs toxins from other plastics like a sponge and killing many of them, we should consume less fish species. Therefore, decreasing your fish consumption is essential to our health and our environment. Also, different cosmetics and hygiene products contain microplastics such as toothpaste, body cleaners, and facial washes. Furthermore, microplastics end up in our food, drinking water, and even in the air. Studies show that we consume between 39,000 to 52,000 particles of microplastics a year. How do we stop these plastics from entering our bodies? and the bodies of other species. There are a few ways in which we can reduce the amount of plastic entering Lake Ontario and therefore reduce the amount of plastic in our bodies and those of other species. First, we can reduce plastics and microplastics by purchasing non-synthetic clothing. When washing synthetic clothing, small synthetic fibers and microplastics are drained into wastewater systems. These plastics are so small that they are very hard to filter out before they reach Lake Ontario. Another way is by using a laundry bowl that catches microfibers shedding off your clothes in the washing machine. Reducing your amount of bottled water consumption and switching to tap water can reduce the amount of microplastics that you consume annually, which are then flushed out of your body and into the the sewage system. Reducing your intake of plastic consumption in your daily routine can make a huge impact on the amount of plastic found in Lake Ontario. We thank to Alison Robertson from Queen's University for sharing this useful information. From the harms of microplastics, we are turning to the educational campaign on drinking water resources in Kataraqui Conservation Area. Recently, Kataraqui Conservation shared a video on www.cleanwatercataraqui.ca to explain where our drinking water comes from. We all play a role in helping protect our sources of drinking water. Kataraqui Conservation works with local municipalities and the public to keep sources of drinking clean water and abundant. To summarize some important information included in the video, 80% of the population in Kingston rely on municipal water supply. The province of Ontario created Drinking Water Source Protection Plan under the Clean Water Act to regulate the monitoring and protection of drinking water sources. Local Economic Community was formed to represent local, municipal and economic and community groups and take on the task of developing science-based policies in the area. This plan is known as the Kataraqui Source Protection Plan. The area consists of 10 watersheds comprised of rivers and streams upwards of 175 lakes the St. Lawrence uh, Lawrence River and Lake Ontario. However, unlike other resources in Ontario, the groundwater in the Cataraqui area is highly susceptible to becoming polluted, with over 90% considered vulnerable to contamination. Some parts of the Cataraqui source protection area have thicker soil cover. Areas with less soil cover tend to be highly vulnerable to contamination, as fractured bedrock can act as a direct pathway for pollutants to reach the drinking water source. The most vulnerable areas are around municipal intakes and wells, also known as intake protection zones and wellhead protection areas. Activities in this area such as fuel storage have the potential to harm the drinking water. But there are best practices outlined in your local source protection plan that can be adopted. So what can be done? Reduce or dispose of your waste properly maintain a natural shoreline with vegetative buffer, avoid or limit the use of chemicals such as fertilizers and pesticides, maintain fuel and heating oil tanks and lines, and maintain wells and septic systems, and upgrade if necessary. The cooperation between Kataraqui Region Conservation Authority, local municipalities and other environmental groups is important to keep water resources safe and clean. The next piece of news is about a Kingstonian author and her new novel, Kate Crow was born and raised in Kingston. Her new, new book, A Knapsack Full of Dreams, highlights her experiences as a street nurse and calls for a national housing program. Kate Crow has been a street nurse in Toronto for more than 30 years and she says her newest book is a memoir of the things that she has seen and the people she has helped The author, who was raised in Kingston and came back to sign copies of her book at Novel Idea, said to the audience that she hopes to shine a light on issues like homelessness and housing In my opinion, this has been the worst year yet, said Crow. It is exemplified really by a 10 to 20-year waiting lists for housing by the huge number of people that are out on the street, by tents and encampments that are popping up everywhere. And the reason is we still do not have a national housing program building affordable housing, Grove told Global News. Tom Greeding, executive director for home-based housing in Kingston, points out the vacancy rate in the city, which is 0.6%, a historic low in the province. On Thursday, uh, November 21, 2019, Paige Agnew, the Director of Planning, Building and Licensing Services for the City of Kingston, and Brent Toderian, an urban planning consultant working with the City, presented the Density by Design Options report to the Planning Committee and the public. The proposed policy changes is aiming to create green light areas of the city, making it easier for the construction of mid-rise and tall building developments in those locations while also making it more difficult to develop these types types of buildings elsewhere. The report is currently recommending up to six police areas through the city. Street-oriented urbanizing areas will be expected to have their design completed in relation to existing streetscapes. Large site urbanizing areas would follow the same concept but would be expected to have a dedicated master plan and potentially new roads. The downtown core is planned to have separate policies for both heritage and non-heritage areas. The proposal also looks at suburban areas and the urban waterfront as policy areas and would incorporate the current Williamsville Control Bylaw. In addition to the potential six zones, some of the recommendations being made as part of this report include, first, setting height limits in downtown core areas, two, creating citywide definitions for mid-rise as four to six stories and tall as 10 stories or more, creating angular stepbacks or other design guideline regulations for the upper floors, creating policies to build active and interesting pedestrian-scaled street frontages, Create policies surrounding building access points, integration of commercial space, external material, and color design. And lastly, create parking policies that emphasize below ground spaces while creating regulations around above ground spaces. After the presentation was held at planning committee, members of the public agencies and community groups were provided with the option to provide comments to the presentation. In your weekly community news program here and now, I'd like to cite two of the comments made. The first one is from Meredith Macdonald from Sydenham District Association. She said, We absolutely support the intent of the materials in this policy report and the direction of mid-rise and toll building issues in this. Mid-rise and large-scale buildings must be well-placed and well-designed with human environment in mind to be successful. We need more housing, but we need more housing for all. So, accessible housing, affordable housing, central housing to where most of us work, and also housing part-time residents that are attending Queen's and St. Lawrence College. We do not want the conversation of where to and where not to to overshadow the importance of how to actually design these. These buildings. The second comment came from David Trostale from Homestead Lang Hold- Holdings. He said, there are some things In the paper that we are concerned about in regards to the impact on affordability of multifamily housing, if you are going to target specific areas and put or imply that zoning can be allowed in those areas, you are going to be driving up land costs. If you are going towards smaller floor plates, the unit yield from a construction perspective is going to lessen. You are not going to get as many units out of a building. Again, that will drive up costs. For residents who want to have their voice heard about this proposal, there is a list of ways you can participate to make it easy. First, read the proposal on the city's website. It's a 48-page report. Attend the open house and the planning committee meetings. Participate in online discussions on Cities Get Involved page and register for feedback for free. The comments will be open until Tuesday, December 31, 2019. You can also talk to your councillor. The city is also asking residents to email Andrea Gamo, who is the project manager on this file, if they wish to receive regular email updates directly. Here and now, in this week's episode, we'll cover the news about the harm that Student Choice Initiative caused for CFRC. While the Ontario Divisional Court overturned the Student Choice Initiative that allowed students to opt out of some student fees last week, the damage the Ontario government's directive created for CFRC is far from over. The Student Choice Initiative issued by the Ford government in early 2019 allowed students at colleges and universities across the province to opt out of non-essential fees such as fees related to student associations and other ancillary fees. As a result, CFRC Radio, the Queen's University radio station, which is also the longest-running campus radio in the world and the second-oldest radio station in the country, took a huge hit when student fees were collected in the fall of 2019. The station manager, Dinah Jansen, champions the court's decision, but she said that Um, the decision doesn't mean CFRC is out of hot water. CFRC lost $50,000 out of a $200,000 budget as a result of Student Choice Initiative. Prior to the Student Choice Initiative, students at Queen's automatically paid a fee to CFRC. But this year, 26.3% of undergraduate students and 31% of graduate students opted out of the fee, meaning a total of about $50,000 in revenue loss. CFRC provides service not only to Queens and the students' population in Kingston, but to the Kingston community as a whole. The station is often a place where new musicians are able to get their music out locally, and it also serves as a place where those in Kingston and beyond discover new music and different genres they might otherwise never hear. Because of the Student Choice Initiative and its subsequent impact on the financial stability of CFRC, the station has opted to continue its annual fundraising campaign, campaign until the end of 2019. The campaign has a goal of raising $20,000, but considering the 50,000 hit the station has already taken, those with CFRC are really hoping to exceed that goal. As of Friday, November the 22nd, the campaign has raised about $12,000. Any little bit that the community members are able to offer to the station to continue supporting their community radio station is certainly most welcome, said Dina Jansen. The Ontario Divisional Court overturned the student choice initiative, citing a number of reasons. The entire ruling can be found via the Canadian Federation of Students, Ontario. Among those reasons, the decision cited, the distinction between essential and non-essential fees seems arbitrary if the actual objective behind the student choice initiative and directives is to lower the financial burden on students, noting that athletic fees, which are roughly 10 times greater than student association fees, are deemed essential, but student association fees are not. No principled basis for this distinction was offered in the record before us or in argument. The focus of the station is currently on the referendum in January, which has been organized by Queen's Alma Mater Society. If the station doesn't pass its mandatory fee at referendum in January, CFRC could face an eventual closure by 2021." You can donate as part of CFRC 101.9 FM annual funding drive on GoFundMe. Another piece of news from the city of Kingston is coming. The city seeks input from businesses on open-door air conditioning by law. In August 2019, Kingston City Council directed the city to develop an open-door air conditioning bylaw, and now the city is offering ways for local business owners to learn more and provide input. City staff are in the process of developing that bylaw, which would prohibit Businesses from having their doors open while running air conditioning. According to the city, the bylaw may include exemptions that take into consideration certain items such as the comfort and wellness of the kitchen staff working in restaurants and for the delivery or shipping of goods. As part of this process, the city is seeking input from business owners. The city will host three drop in coffee and chat sessions for local businesses. Kingston is in a climate emergency and it is time to conserve energy as best as we can. This proposed by law is aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions caused by keeping uh, our doors and windows open when the air conditioning is in use, said Julia salter Keen, Community Projects Manager for the City of Kingston. The city arranged three drop-in sessions where local businesses can learn about bylaw. The first one was held today in the morning at Sustainable Kingston, 303 Bagot Street, Unit 6. At the same address, there will be a second session on Wednesday, November 27th. There is also an online survey run by the city. Input gathered from businesses online and through the in-person drop-in sessions will be compiled into a report that will accompany the draft bylaw, which is expected to be presented to council sometime from April to June 2020. The online survey will close on Thursday, December 12th, 2019 at 4 p.m. In our previous episodes, we covered the news about Doug Ford's cuts to education program and teachers unions' potential response. As you might remember, teachers unions across Ontario held strike votes two weeks ago, a decision supported overwhelmingly by the majority of the teachers. Both the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation and the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario have announced job action that will begin on Tuesday, November 26th. The Limestone District School Board wants parents and students to know that no changes to student learning should elementary... Teachers Federation of Ontario and Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation takes strike action next week. The ETF4 represents elementary teachers and has indicated that job action will begin with a partial withdrawal of services on Tuesday, November 22nd. Should an agreement not be reached in the interim, This means elementary teachers across the province, including here in Limestone, will be withdrawing administrative duties such as not attending professional learning sessions, not participating in school improvement planning or in board activities outside of the instructional day. The LDSP said in the press release that schools will remain open and classes will continue as scheduled. At the same time, the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation (OSSTF) has also voted in favor of strike action and Uh, announced on November 21st that they too will begin job action on Tuesday, November 22nd. The president of the union, Harvey Bischoff, said in a press release that our members are committed to defending the quality of education in Ontario against government that is determined to undermine it, and they are absolutely prepared to defend their ability to provide the best possible learning environment for the students they work with. According to the Limestone District School Board, OSSTF represents over 700 education workers, including secondary school teachers, occasional teachers, professional student services personnel, and community education instructors. Negotiations between the union, government, and school board associations are currently ongoing. From the strike of educators, we are turning our attention to the climate strike that will happen this Friday. Kingston Climate Strike is organized by Fridays for Future, 350 and Extinction Rebellion. As you might remember, in August 2018, Greta Thunberg began the Fridays for Future movement. This first climate strike Uh, in solidarity with Greta in the Americas happened in Canada on Friday, November the 2nd, 2018. By Friday, December the 7th, there were nine youth groups in Canada striking and a map to connect them all. There were 98 strikes for Canada's national strike on Friday, May the 3rd, 2019, and 104 events across Canada on the May 24th global strike. From September 20 to the 27th, over 1 million Canadians participated in climate strikes in 245 communities across Canada. At least 40 communities have strikes every Friday in Canada, and the next global strike is Friday, November 29, 2019. Fridays for Future Canada announced that millions of us will walk out of our workplaces and homes to join young climate strikers on the street and demand an end to the age of fossil fuels. Our house is on fire. Let's act like it. We demand climate justice for everyone. Another initiative that organizes the strike is three 150, which is an international movement of ordinary people working to end the age of fossil fuels and build a world of community-led renewable energy for all. They demand a fast, just transition to 100% renewable energy for all, no fossil fuel projects anywhere, not a penny more for dirty energy. In this week's episode, I'd like to share some of the climate science basics with you, which can be found on 350's website. The first basic fact is, it is warming. The world scientist confirmed in 2018 IPCC report that At the current rate, the world could cross 1.5 centigrade degrees hotter as soon as 2030. That's only a decade from now, well within the lifespan of most people alive today. 1.5 centigrade degrees might not sound like a big increase in the temperature, but it is the difference between life and death for thousands of people. Earth has always had natural cycles of warming and cooling, but not like we are seeing now. The top five hottest years on record are 2016, 15, 17, 18, and 14. The rising temperatures doesn't only mean it is getting hotter. The Earth's climate is complex. Even a small increase in average global temperature means big changes with lots of dangerous side effects. The second fact is summarized as it is us. That is, human beings are causing climate change largely by burning fossil fuels. Rising temperatures correlate almost exactly with the release of greenhouse gases. The third basic fact is a response to the climate skeptics, we are sure. That is, an overwhelming 97% of scientists agree that climate change is being caused by human greenhouse gas emissions. The fourth basic fact is the prospects is bad. 1% of warming has already resulted in devastating impacts across the planet. Global grain yields have declined by 10% from the heat waves and floods connected to climate change, unleashing hunger and displacement. The last item is more optimistic. It says we can fix it. The basic facts of climate crisis are grim. The vast majority of fossil fuel reserves need to stay in the ground for us to stay below 1.5 centigrade great decrease of warming and fossil fuel companies aren't going to do it without a fight. Another group that endorses the climate strike this Friday is Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion is a group founded in England and it promotes radical climate action through civil disobedience. As it has grown into an international movement, the group's presence in Kingston is beginning to be felt. The group organizes creative protests. One of them is called Dying. Dying go hand in hand with coffins containing the earth and mournful diners sitting at the empty feast table, their lack of food and a drink representing the current experience of the world's most impoverished and the future for everyone else. Their protest has a symbolic power. Other than that, they also organize acts of public disruption. XR's core belief is that change is possible through nonviolent civil disobedience. XR sees the world as sleepwalking into disaster and believes its visible, insistent strategies are necessary to wake the public and the government. The goal of Kingston chapter are the same as those of XR globally, it is just enacting them locally. Events in Kingston include induction meetings for informational talks like heading for extinction And what do we do about it? XR direct their anger at what they view as irresponsible corporations, unreliable governments, and absence of media coverage, and want their anger to be shared by the world so everyone can move forward together. So, the the three groups of activists in Kingston call for climate strike in Kingston on November 29th. All Kingstonians can join the protesters at 12 p.m. at Springer Market Square. Today, we are closing the community news with a positive development for St. Vincent de Paul Society of Kingston, a charity that offers crucial service to the community. St. Vincent de Paul Society bought a former grocery store property on Baggage Street and now makes plans for moving. Judith Fife, who is the Executive Director of St. Vincent Paul, said in an interview that the new site is nearly an acre in size and cost just over $1 million. They had a donor to uh, cover the cost of the property. St. Vincent de Paul serves over 20,000 meals a year, operates a food pantry, and has a warehouse stocked with clothes and household items household items to help the municipality's most vulnerable population. Now they offer those services out of their current site, which consists of about 5,000 square feet between two buildings. Judy Five says the demand for their services continues to rise. According to Five's statement this year, 248 new households signed up for their emergency food pantry and there has been a 52% increase in the number of people seeking a hot meal. Five adds that in their current site, they don't have the space to conduct one-to-one conversations with the folks reaching out to them for help. With the expanding volume of their current services, the executive director says the society has started conversations with other organizations to to raise Change what they can offer. The charity receives feedback from the community, and Judith Five says those community conversations will continue. You just heard weekly updates from Kingston communities. Stay tuned on CFRC 101.9 FM, your campus radio, to hear and know inclusive needs from a diverse community.